Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody and welcome back to another all new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics Marvelous Mutants through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have an X's for Podcast Women in Comics special for you. We're going to be taking a look at the recently released Women of Marvel one shot a little bit later on. But to kick things off, Nathan and I had an opportunity to sit down with industry legend Alyssa Quitney. Whether you know her from her editing work in the pages of Sandman and The Dreaming, or her writing work at DC Vertigo later on such as House of Mystery. Maybe you recognize her name from the New Avengers breakout audiobook, her own prose novels, or the upcoming Rogue Untouched, a Marvel heroines novel from Aconite Books. Now, while in many ways this book is a bit of a re-origin for Rogue, it's designed for new readers to be able to understand these characters and for classic readers to get new sides of characters they love so much. And this book delivers on every level. Alyssa also delivered massively in this interview, talking about what it was like to work for Vertigo, be part of things like Sandman, and her incredible love for Rogue and the X-Men having grown up reading these characters and being so connected to them. Her powerful manifesto of what Rogue represents to the X-Men is the sort of reason we need more women writing women in comics. And this interview was an absolute pleasure to be a part of, and we hope you guys enjoy it as much as we loved being a part of it. Hey, everybody, I am Nathan. You can find me online at Desler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. And hey, everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today, we have an extra special guest with us, Alisa Whitney, and she's here to talk about her upcoming novel, Rogue Untouched. It's a Marvel Heroines novel, and it's going to be released by Aconite on May 4th. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh my gosh, we are so excited. Yeah, <laughs> I need to just, everybody who's been on this show knows that I have long said that there is no way to look at the modern scope of the X-Men without contextualizing it as a reflection of the emergence of Vertigo, right? So everything that Vertigo was doing in like the mid-90s kind of transferred right over to X-Men in the 2000s. And, you know, we saw it time and time again. And I've, I've talked a lot about that on the show for the last couple of years. And so it's such an honor to have somebody who worked on the things that I am constantly referencing. As, yeah, as like you can see where if it weren't for brief lives, Jonathan Hickman wouldn't be able to do Hoxpox. Like, you know, I I have a lot of feelings about Vertigo and how like Vertigo saved the comic industry for me and it gave me a lot of freedom to dream. So I just want to thank you so much for being a part of whether it was the dreaming or even maybe lesser known pieces. Uh, people don't always think about things like the later endless work like uh, Destiny, A Chronicle of Death Foretold, which is such a terrific thing. Uh, the Vertigo Visions line where they try to reinvent characters in unique ways with like Phantom Stranger. You know, your body of work really reflects on my experience with comics. And I just want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, it is always so lovely here, you know, when, when someone has read this stuff. But I, I think it's one of the signs of getting older. The 90s doesn't seem that long ago to me. So I'm always thinking, like, how can this be seminal to someone? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I was not that long ago to me either. So. <laughs> I just want to say that I had this experience a while back where uh, I was working with, um, oh, my brain is going to stutter now. And I'm trying to remember, I, I was, it'll come back to me. Anyway, I was working with someone at DC and I was saying, it's amazing to me that you know all these obscure House of Mystery characters like Lop. And, um, and, and the editor said, oh, well, you know, back in the 90s, DC printed this reprint of uh, back, you know, welcome back to the House of Mystery. And I said, oh, that wasn't DC. That was me as an assistant editor. <laughs> oh, oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. And uh, I believe you also worked on the later House of, I think it was House of Mystery, the the Vertigo series that ran sort of parallel to the beautiful, breathtaking, thank you for everything you did for us, Pete Milligan's swan song to Hellblazer uh, toward the end there that was by Lila Sturges. That was so great. Yes, yes. I think that I'm trying to remember. I, I it was was that was that the exquisite corpse? Yes, uh, it was absolutely. Yeah. So it's funny. Shelley and I, you know, first of all, we worked together on staff, and then later when I was freelance writing, I got the chance to work with her as an editor, and she was wonderful. So she would bring me in on great projects, and always had a, a really really good editorial feedback, and and I I felt like I did good work. With her and for her. Well, I think it shows in the longevity of that body of work that, you know, we're still talking about it now is so exciting for me because it's stuff that I grew up with and love so much. And it's just great to be able to look back and see that it still matters, not just to me, but that it was a shared experience, like a cultural zeitgeist. I can say to people, oh, but you know, later Vertigo, and they're like, oh yeah, House of Mystery and, you know, Dreaming, because it's not just Sandman, which I believe you were the assistant editor during Sandman? Yes, well, not for the entire run. I came in around, I think it was um, Season of mists and then I, I I have to look exactly to see because I, I left and then I came back so I think I was there um which was the road trip part of Sandman I'm having a brief lives brief lives okay so yeah I I think I actually went on a road trip during when when Sandman being on its road trip <laughs> my uh, uh ex-husband former I don't know we, we're in a separated husband we're still really friendly anyway um, <laughs> we went on a road trip and um and then I came back as an editor so there was this little gap in there but yeah I was working on Sandman for a while and then I continued to work um with Neil on some outside projects and obviously on the spin-off The Dreaming um and initially on on Lucifer which we actually in a very exciting way have Mike Carey coming on the show in the next couple of weeks to discuss oh some of his X-Men to discuss Lucifer for our wedding well from our engagement gift my husband got me the uh season of mist pocket watch the one that came oh. out during sandman month yes and then for our wedding he got me the complete run of lucifer so you know th it's such an important series to me so like just you know I, it's stuff where you're like oh when was the road trip i'm like oh brief laughs i gotcha <laughs> it's been <laughs> just so exciting because you know things like lucifer continue to dominate the pop culture landscape in such a significant way the tom ellis series just ran so successfully that even when they tried to cancel it it wouldn't stay dead which is the most morning star thing i can imagine <laughs> and you know we have the sandman show Show coming adapted by Neil himself which I love that I'm like Neil himself like my buddy Neil that's ridiculous of me so 
you know, that's really exciting. And it must at least be rewarding at this point to see how the work is still important to so many people and like bigger than ever. I saw that my Sandman number one is like going for a thousand dollars and I'm like, people are crazy. I got that for a dollar. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> but one of the things that I think is interesting, whether it's about story or anything else, is we all know when something is brilliant, when it's handed to us all framed and it's hung on a museum wall and someone says, this, this here is a work of art. But would you recognize it if it were just graffitied on a wall? Would you recognize Yo-Yo Ma if you know, he were playing in the subway station? And I got a chance to discover, you know, I guess, well, did I just, I, I found Mike Carey's, he had a comic and I don't remember the name of it anymore, but he was in the slush pile when I first read him. And I remember the little hairs on the back of my neck going up. And, oh, this, this writer is special. So um, I, I felt really happy with that because we're not always tested. You know, would we recognize this just stumbling on it? And I feel like Mike Carey was a test that I passed because I got, I recognized that he ha has such an individual talent and imagination and voice. And, you know, he, he is such a defining person for this team. Uh, you know, we're a predominantly X-Men podcast. We, we talk a little bit about the rest of the Marvel Universe, but we are pretty X-Men. We're launching a sort of Vertigo side channel where we're very excited to talk about, you know, the best years of Vertigo, taking a look at, it's really the best of every year of Vertigo, not the best of Vertigo. We're very excited, and it's been so amazing to get to see that talent, like, you know, yourself coming to Rogue, Mike Carey, who's done a number of stints on the X-Men, whether it was his ongoing run developing the voice on X-Men Legacy, to be, uh, oh my gosh, I was about to say about Xavier, but also Rogue. That's so interesting that you and Mike Carey now have both done extensive work on Rogue's voice. Oh, interesting. And, you know, I was so intimidated by the wealth of X-Men material that's accrued that when I, I, I had been an X-Men reader in college. And so that was, you know, the whole Chris Claremont um, initial stuff. And I, I have gone back and read them because I, I do love the X-Men. But, you know, after a while, it becomes a little overwhelming to figure out where where do I jump into this double Dutch game? And uh, so I hadn't, I don't know that I've read that. Oh, of course, I could have forgot. So wait, just tell me what I should read of, of Mike Carey's X-Men Rogue. Oh, absolutely. Let me pull that up right now because it's one of my favorite eras ever. Mike Carey came on to the secondary X-Men title, the famous Jim Lee that had been uh, X-Men from number one to 119, no, I'm sorry, 113. It then mm -hmm. relaunched as new X-Men at number 114, which was by Grant Morrison, which, you know, for those who might not realize, Grant Morrison, you know, did all of the weirdest things at Vertigo for quite a while, whether it was, <laughs> you know, the filth or Sebastian O or, you know, the meta powerhouse that is Invisibles. He would then come over to X-Men and do new X-Men 114 to 154. Mike Carey would come on to that title shortly thereafter and would go on to write X-Men Legacy in its place. The title changed names. Mm -hmm. So then the, the X-Men Legacy run featuring Rogue starts predominantly with issue number doo 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 I'm buying time. Um, <laughs> buying time. Number 220. X-Men Legacy number 220 through roughly its end at 275, although it is of note that at some point Mike Carey turns the reins over to the incredible uh, Christos Gage, who is such a great guy, terrific X-Men writer. But yeah, starting with X-Men Legacy number 220, and I believe it's through about number 
260. It is Mike Carey writing Rogue as the head of an X-team of young students going around the world acting in the age of X-Men Utopia. Oh, God, is, has this been collected? Can I-, I believe so. You should be able to go on Amazon or if you're looking to buy something a little bit more like I like to look at, you know, secondhand trades. If you're a secondhand trades person, definitely check out mycomicshop.com, which usually has these X-Men legacy trades in stock. Thank you. I actually am going to support my local comic book stores. Oh, please do. <laughs> so I always try to order through them. I have two great local comic book stores, one in Hyde Park and one in Rhinebeck's. Oh, I love it when you can get that good relationship with your comic book store and they're like, hey, we've got this I know you're going to like. And you're like, oh, yes. Um, So let's start talking about this beautiful, magnificent book that you've written for us. Like, I am so in love with with it I, I can't i can't gush about it enough so like if i gush a little bit too much i'm so sorry took me by surprise <laughs> i was ready to like it i wasn't like i normally don't just keep going next page next page next page i'm like kind of like i'm gonna put it down no <laughs> i was hungry. yeah honestly seriously i was it's one of the first few books you know when you get a really good book and you get towards the end and you're like just a few pages from the end and you're like i really don't want to get to the end because i don't want the book to be over i want there to be more to read still that's where i was oh my god i I just want to say this makes me so happy for two reasons one i I, this is the second prose novel I've done, you know, for Marvel. And I think both times I sort of assumed that my primary reader was somebody who was interested in the characters and, and in the X-Men, but probably not a real diehard comics reader. Because I, I don't know why, but that's sort of where I did it in my head that, you know, this is someone who maybe would like to read the comics, but doesn't know where to jump in. And so to know that comics readers like you guys are, are you know, excited and happy about it, that makes me so happy. And the second reason I'm so happy is because this was, in a way, the hardest novel I've ever written because it was during the pandemic and um, and just life threw me one bizarro curveball after another so it was uh i i enjoyed writing it because when i wrote it i got to leave you know the crazy weirdness of life a bit but it was it was definitely a challenging book yeah i know you mentioned that um in your acknowledgement and just a few minutes ago actually too that you did start reading rogue in college and you said it was definitely during the claremont era so for me um it was really exciting to see you go back and revisit her origin in a fresh new way and that sort of helped me understand the character in a different way um but what was it like for you to get to shape this character in such a brand new way um that was exciting and new uh, at once but also still had all the iconic pieces of rogue well i wanted to capture the essence of rogue as best i could and i think for me the essence of rogue was a combination of um vulnerability and snarky humor and you know, there, I think when I started to think about all the female comic book superhero characters who had appealed to me from childhood, they were all wisecrackers. And it, it, at least in the beginning, when, when I was a kid, you didn't get as much of that. I mean, I loved Wonder Woman, but Wonder Woman was gentle and noble and, um, and, and kind of like Superman. Whereas I really responded to characters that were more like Spider-Man. And there, there just weren't that many female characters like that. And the other thing that I... 
I have this X-Men theory, and this is this this was sort of a theory of mine back from college days that I saw um, I saw Cyclops as being kind of a living metaphor for male adolescent sexual anxiety. I have uncontrollable things that shoot out of me, and if you get in their way, it makes me very powerful. But I might accidentally destroy you with my uncontrolled power. How men frequently think that is the case in their teens. Oh, damn. Wow. When you said that, I was like, ooh, that is spot on. And I felt that Rogue captured something of, you know, I think back in the 90s, I assumed this was more universal. And as we've all become aware that my metaphor is there were, you know, I grew up, there were what, four or five network channels and, you know, channel 13, and that was it. And that was sort of how the world was. And now we realize that there's so many different channels of humans and ways of being human. That said, this was my theory about how Rogue captured a classic dynamic of female adolescent sexuality. I, I, I think it boiled down to, if I touch you, I have tremendous power. I may even take some of your power, but I may lose my sense of self in the process. I'm like floored right now. I'm like, I've never thought of it in that way, but it is such... Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm like jaw drop right now. You know, for me, you know, when you said 13, my thought was, ah, yes, good old fashioned tri-state area. This person knows what I'm about because I was at a concert one time and the artist said, you know, it's so great to be back in New York because when I turn on the TV, you know, Rachel's going to look back at me from channel four and that's how it's supposed to be. And like, that's just like, so I'm immediately in the same place as you. I'm identifying with you in terms of this experience growing up thinking this thing. I often make the joke about how, you know, Scott's power is so incredibly phallic. It is an unrestrainable beam and it's, you know, pretty on the nose. I had never thought of it as the depiction of Rogue. And like, I, it, it's transformed the way I think about not just this work, but ways I'm going to reflect on Rogue in the past. And it just makes me think how few women writers have ever had a chance to write Rogue, because I, I can't imagine this wouldn't have been explored at some point by someone whose pen belongs on this character. Well, it it certainly felt relatable for me. And I think that I've written some YA and I, I have read some YA. And what I found is that in a lot of the YA fantasy uh, material that I was reading, sexuality didn't really resemble the tangled craziness that I recall from my adolescence, where, you know, it was the opposite of the Hunger Games. In the Hunger Games, you know, Katniss has these these two male love interests and she behaves, you know, whenever she has a question, it's more, hmm, can I trust you? Maybe I need to kill you. And that was just not my adolescent dynamic at all. It was, I was a golden retriever puppy of, of hormones. And, um, you know, and only afterwards would I think, hmm, perhaps that was not a wise decision. Um, and I, I think that something about Rogue really spoke to me and the the fact that she had a personality that was filled with, with sass and wisecrack, but she had this intense vulnerability that went with her with her power. That her her virtue was her vice, her her Achilles heel was the source of her power, just made her one of the most all-time compelling characters for me. Wow, no, that's I 
wow, I'm I'm still floored by that metaphor, like by that analogy, uh, because it's like Nico said, it's causing me to go back in my head right now and rethink all of these stories from that view. Marie has a chance encounter with a charming Cajun that sets her on a remarkable new journey. She discovers her mutant status and gets into loads of trouble. Um, being a longtime fan of Rogue, we know everybody always has their own take on the Rogue and Gambit relationship, but in writing this story from a brand new perspective from their first meeting, did your opinion change by writing their first meeting in a different light? Well, hmm. Okay, to begin with, I decided to really play fast and loose with previous origins. So I do believe that originally in a, in a lot of her history, she meets, um, she meets her mentor at a much earlier age and she meets Gambit at a much later age. But when I started to delve into where that fictional town would be. There, there isn't, uh, I, I'm having names, when I'm working on another project, certain names just drop right out of my my mind. But I think it's Caldecott County. And I think, can't remember, I don't think her town had a name. So I gave it a name of, um, was it Peck? I think that was the name. And I based it on a real place, which is Bood, I think. Because I tried to pick, I tried to think, where in Mississippi would this be? Would It wouldn't be the coast. It wouldn't be. So I tried to pick uh, a real area and do a little research and get a sense of where it would be. And then I thought, you know something, where was Gambit when this all was going on? I bet Remy wasn't that far away. And then I began to compare her story and his story. And I thought, ooh, they could have met earlier. Why didn't they meet earlier? I want them to meet earlier. And um, and then it allows for a kind of when Harry met Sally version of their relationship where they meet when they are so young that it's, it's not going to, it's not going to be the time that sticks but it, it, it so I, I moved up the timeline of a lot of their um a, a lot of their relationship no 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 it, it it in this in this retelling of this revisioning of rogue's origin it really made sense and it did obviously help set up her central internal conflict does she want to go with lucretia or does she want to kind of like see what's going on with remy a little bit so um early on we do meet lucretia she is presented as a big southern blonde who you have her equate to Dolly Parton, which I love that. <laughs> like, it's so perfect. Um, but also, Lucretia is more than meets the eye. Uh, she's interviewing candidates for a program. She takes an instant shine to her waitress at the diner, giving her a flyer, which Marie does something that I would have probably done too, where she just puts it in her pocket and doesn't look at it because she thinks it's a religious organization trying to recruit. This sets up the internal conflict for Rogue to go to this program or to focus on Remy. Um, when Marie visits Lucretia, she is introduced to a group of fellow mutants and takes an early shine to blind spot. How important was it to you that Rogue meet another young lady in this program going through the same things as she was? It was important. I think that friendship and female friendship is so important. One of the big tropes uh, in, in superhero stuff is the invented family. That my family of origin is not the family that gets who I really am. And therefore, I need to create an invented family, a found family. And I think that resonates for a lot of us, but in more, in older comic storytelling, you get mostly male friendships and, and male alliances and rivalries, and you don't get that so much with, with women. When I did my New Avengers, I was told that I, I, I was basing that one on Brian Bendis's breakout storyline, but they said I could 
you know, obviously change things and move things around and use different characters. And um, I, I wanted to write Black Widow. And I, I asked if I could include her. And they said, yes, who are you going to swap out? And they assumed actually that I was going to swap out Spider-Woman, who was the only woman who was in uh, the original. Uh, and I, I uh, what? What? Uh, I'm so stunned by that. I was like, I, I didn't mean to make a noise, but I was. <laughs> I thought you were joking or dying on audio. I thought, oh, <laughs> no, he does that all the time. I said something wrong. I was literally stunned. Um. Oh yeah, just oh sure. But stories only need one woman. That's that's how the real world works. Okay. It was. I, I was a little surprised. I said, no, no, I'd like to have two women. I, I actually ended up swapping out Wolverine. Even though Wolverine's an amazing character. I love Wolverine. But for the group dynamic, I felt that this would work better. And so I think with um, with female friendship, you get so many interesting possibilities. And now I don't even remember what the original question was. <laughs> uh, how important was it to Rogue to... Uh, blind meet, um, blind yes, yeah. <laughs> so I I really did want there to be other female characters that she would interact with and have friendships with and have that whole aspect of things. I think that if you know, I've written in in romance as a genre. I've written in in superhero and, and in other genres too. But one of the interesting developments I think in romance, if you look at where it went from the eighties to the nineties to now, is that earlier romance is. So so much focused on the hero and the heroine or on the on the romantic couple and it, it didn't look as much at outside friendships and alliances and, and and family interactions and I think that has become more and more important in in that storytelling so I and and I think I, I may have said this already if I haven't it's just because my mind is I love soap opera and I think that the soap opera element of superhero stuff often gets discounted it, it's for me what made the x-men so compelling when I was in college. It was a combination of dysfunctional, neurotic young people with romantic entanglements and rivalries and all this great superhero science fiction stuff. That's something you have in common with a lot of the writers from Vertigo. Actually, no lie, that's something that both Grant Morrison and Pete Milligan have said is at the heart of their X-Men works, is addressing soap opera motifs in superhero stories. So it's just so incredible how so many of you have that same kind of shared worldview. And I do want to ask maybe a question that pivots slightly in a more serious direction, whether it was in the pages of the work at Vertigo or some of your own work, like Till the Fat Lady Sings, you've never shied away from real life situations and the ways in which they can present either in fiction or nonfiction. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was this was one of the first times we were able to get a really strong perspective from Rogue's point of view. We get it currently monthly in Teeny Howard's Excalibur, which I'm a tremendous fan of, but that's not quite the same thing as the depth that prose can let us get into a character. And I wanted to know how important it was for you to carry through sort of that same real world resonance that exists in your previous work in Rogue here. 
Oh, thank you for, for saying that because I I think one of my litmus tests for anything I'm writing is am I writing from an emotionally authentic place? And if I'm not, then what is the point of anything that I'm doing? I really I, I think that you need to be a little risky in order to be genuinely funny. And I humor is just one of the things I, I think about constantly because it is such a great goodness and gets so underrated. It's hard to it's the souffle of of literature and that it's hard to achieve and then when you've achieved it people are like ah it is nothing it is just full of air but you know it's it's so if you, if you don't write out of an emotionally authentic place and you don't take risks you you really can't be funny you can at best be clever and clever clever is to funny i don't know like 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 a Clever is to, I see, as a writer, I should be able to come up with, clever is to funny like a, a Chuck E. Cheese's pizza is to like a genuine New York City slice of very good stuff. That is, that is, that is powerful. How much freedom did you have to choose the characters that you used in the book? Uh, I really appreciate a lot of the choices that you made of characters who maybe were a little bit more outside of the typical uh, brotherhood purview. What drew you to certain characters and how much freedom did you have to do it? Well, it's interesting you asked that because it turned out I took some freedoms, which I did not have. And this is... <laughs> It's a problem. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just let you into the messy sausage making a little. Um, so what Marvel wanted me to do, and which I did uh, just before the pandemic, is I wrote a very complete outline. It was they made me go into a lot more detail than I usually do in my outlines. And I generally think of outlines as being rough plans for a cross cross country trip. But as I'm going along, I might say, "Oh, look, it's a steampunk festival." If I just detour over here, I'll go visit that. And, you know, and I tend to adjust my outlines as I'm writing. Um, but it turned out Marvel really, really wanted to know exactly what was going on. And then the pandemic hit and um, my mother came to, to live with me. And my mom had some health issues that uh, made everything a little more complex. So when I was writing, it was in these isolated bursts. I, uh, it, it's all very complicated. But my mind began to go to stranger and stranger places. And instead of just going over to the steampunk festival that was, you know, a small detour, I actually did some more major detours and ended up including at least one major character who was not in my outline at all. So I had no permission to use that character. And uh, when I handed the draft, which was a bit late into my lovely, lovely editor at Aconite, this is published through Aconite and then Aconite would get their approvals from the Marvel team. Anyway, so I handed it in and, you know, she said, Alisa, um, we've got a bit of a situation here, you know, because it, you, you know, Marvel has been giving us some issues when the writers deviate a little bit from their synopsis. And you, you have deviated a little bit. You are. <laughs> deviant. And no, I didn't say that, but I knew she was thinking it. So I, you know, I felt that cold, you know, you know, wash of adrenaline. I said, oh, it's going to be all right. It's going to be fine. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to write Marvel a letter explaining why I've done this. And I, not the real reason, which is, you know, oh my God, it was a pandemic. My mom was with, I was losing my mind. No, I said, 
I, I had a very logical reason for uh, for creating this other, you know, for including this other character. And um, and I did actually have another reason. And then I, I had to wait find, to find out whether I'd need to rewrite the second half of the book. And instead, Marvel said, nope, yeah, that's okay. That's fine. So that's how much freedom I had. Oh, no. <laughs> It, you know, I have I have a feeling it's going to be the character who I was going to ask about <laughs> next. So if you can't answer, just say that. Um, <laughs> how important was it to you to include uh, Tessa in the book? Oh, let's see. How much can I? Say? I'm going to try and do this in a non-spoilerish way. It started with another character. So the character that I initially was going to use as my main antagonist didn't have a lot written about them in comics. I'm, I'm really carefully trying to choose my words so I don't spoiler everything. Um, and as I tried to figure out how to write this character, I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm a little worried that I'm on the verge of kind of writing a, a, almost something that is uncon... How can I put this? When you're writing comics or fantasy, there's this danger zone where you can unintentionally be writing a metaphor for something that you would be horrified by. So, for example, if your bad guys are all, you know, people with, I don't know, lizard skin, then are you really saying that people who have deformities are the bad guys? And, you know, uh, unless you've got equal number of people with lizard skin who are also good guys, is, is, that, is that what you're saying? That's a huge yeah. thing on this show. So your audience here is totally on your side with inclusion and diversity. Need to start not just by including things, but making sure not to include certain things as well. Yes. And I, I think it's it's something that you can lump, you know, blunder around with a bit before you, you realize it. And I'm really lucky in that one of the uh, writers and artists I've worked with is Al Davison. Uh, I've worked with him as an editor, as a collaborator. He's an amazing artist and writer. He he runs a comic book store in England. Anyway, I had a conversation with Al and I said, you know, I'm a little worried that this is not kosher, what I, I've been thinking about doing with this character. And Al said, yes, indeed, strikes me as not kosher. Al is also, a, a, I should say, a, a wheelchair user. So I said, huh. And then I thought about it some more and I thought, you know, one of the amazing things about the X-Men is you've got Professor Xavier and, um, you know, it's really hard to say Xavier on the radio or something like something like, I'm sorry okay that's just besides the point but the cool thing is he's this amazing character with a lot of agency and a lot of power and he is a wheelchair user but it's not the defining thing about him and I thought about that and I thought you know well is it enough to just not do something crummy what if I take one of the characters that I was going to write and also have them be a, a wheelchair user and I looked around for another character and there wasn't one and I thought well okay so I'll, I'll make one i did love the character and i love how you presented her so um thanks i mean when the rest of creating the character i find it pretty easy to create characters that's not that's not a hard thing for me to do because you know like like a lot of people i guess my my head is crowded with people and i also was trying to think about someone who would have cool powers that hadn't been utilized a lot and um and i guess i was thinking about insects i i know there's um i mean animal man over at dc 
OKC has the ability to tap into any animal's power that's around him. And I think that that is such a cool power. But I, I think one of the great things about mutants in the Marvel universe is that their their powers are often so limited, so specific that allows it allows for a deeper dive. And so I thought by restricting her powers to insects, um, it it just allowed for more interesting ways for her to use her powers. And I think that also sort of supports the fact that it is sort of X-Men. The X-Men are supposed to be kind of like, you know, the coolest freaks you know. And when all of the X-Men have bright, shiny abilities in terms of like, oh, no, their power is, you know, metaphoric for an eagle. And this person can only tap into the power of ponies. You know, you <laughs> Right? I, I want the power of po- Fluttershy. I just want to be Fluttershy. And, you know, you wind up in this situation where where is the freak of it? And I think, you know, creating a character whose power does tap into something that does play into this idea of the less attractive side of things, that's a pretty strong current within the X-Men. And it's even sort of like that ugliness that I think you brought up exploring earlier in terms terms of rogue's power being both her ability and a curse she does have this ability to have any power but you know there is a trade to it there is a cost and in that regard you know there is a lot of kind of like the cost of doing business throughout the course of this story kind of a, a sense of what to do next and how it's going to result in because i'm also trying to be like no spoiler zone right but it's hard, I know, right? <laughs> it's definitely a book that likes to set up situations and then play out the consequences which is something that's actually really true to rogue's character and in fact it's true to gambit's character gambit is a character defined by his choices and then pays for them over and over because frequently early on in his life gambit made choices that he would come to regret rogue is in a similar place we see that mystique over and over can't get away from the choices she's made and i wanted to know if that sort of all morality kind of has to come with a gray scale that applies to this world of characters i mean i did see it here as well so was that something that you had in mind or do these characters just naturally lead themselves to that sort of investigation of morality in terms of consequence? Ooh, this is a really good and complex question. I'm going to attempt to answer it and you'll tell me if I have answered it. I, I don't want to give the you know politician beauty contestant answer, which isn't an answer, but I... I don't believe in good and evil with a capital G and a capital E. And so I am incapable of authentically writing stories that are about good and evil in that way. So, you know, I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I always had this foundational problem with it, which was what really makes the vampires different than human beings? Because I know we were told they were just evil, 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 and that they just had the coloration of humans they were. But it's clear with character of Spike that he doesn't have a soul, supposedly, but he is not just evil. And he clearly is a continuation of the failed poet that he was in his human life. And if vampires 
are given to evil, but they are capable of other choices, then what makes executing them different than executing humans without a trial? It gets into some really dicey places. And so when I think about good and evil, I, I think about all of the complicated choices we make and how they are all, we, we, we you know, in order to be on the side of good, you have to be continuously re-examining your choices. So I think that perhaps these characters lend themselves to this kind of moral questioning, but it's also the way I see the universe. And I think that the other thing I really always enjoyed about the X-Men, uh, which is a little different from some other comic book storytelling, is it was about human choices, about prejudice, about the correct response to, to you know, authoritarianism. It, it was never about, you know, along comes evil with a capital E and we must combat it with our... I don't know, phallic laser vision. Yeah, phallic laser vision. That is how I combat evil. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I do think you ans you're answering the question a thousand percent. I think that actually is kind of reflective in not just the things you've said in the course of this episode, where you said you wanted to use Natasha Romanov. I can't think of a character that better represents a lack of good or evil and an understanding of a need for chaotic neutral. And I think it also sort of sources back to some of the work that we mentioned earlier. You know, there was a huge, huge push in the work on Sandman and the work on the dreaming that a dream wasn't inherently evil because it did something bad, but rather there were nightmares that could not help what they were created to be and in their own fashion were behaving within their understanding of morality because they were amoral to us. And that is something that I think really can be traced through the work you've worked on in comics and fiction for a long time, that sort of sense of examine why you apply the label of good versus evil. Yes, absolutely. And I, I would also like to say that one of the things that resonate for me right now in terms of people's lives, their families, their friendships, is I think we have all experienced in the past few years politics becoming more personal. And so people may find themselves on the opposite sides of a political divide with intimates, with, with lovers and spouses and friends and family. And when you start to think of the other side as just capital E evil, that way leads to some serious uh, capital B badness. I like that we're using capital letters to emphasize how we feel because yeah. that is where I'm at. So yes, capital A agree. <laughs> <laughs> I am without a font change. <laughs> that was one of my biggest takeaways that I, I loved how you presented uh, Mystique's group as not in the general way they would be presented as terrorists or evil, but they're they're a lot more morally complex. So I mean, just I just wanted to say thank you. I noticed that and I loved how you did that and you didn't set them up as just, you know, like the mustache twirling villains petting their black cat. I, I have to say that if I do wind up doing another road book, it would be very much about allegiances and that push and pull between groups. I think that interests me a lot. And I think, you know, I would want to find some personal stake in any story that, that I was writing. And that, I think, resonates with all of us right now. And, you know, I know our audience. I know what our audience looks for, especially in an X-Men tie-in novel. I can say for sure that this definitely fits the very, it's weird to say unique and extremely specific needs of our audience. 
But what are the unique and specific needs of your audience? Basically, take any X Men and make it feel like they're a pop star in their own music video set to the soundtrack of their heart, <laughs> and that is that, that is, is exactly what this does. Uh, it, wait, so take say this again. You, so you got to take an X Man, right? And yes. you essentially have to make them a rock star. In mm-hmm. the context of the story, like it has to be like that way that no matter who it was in the 1980s and 90s, the music mm-hmm. video always spun around that lead singer doing weird stuff that no one needs to do in that music video, but they always did it. You know, like I think back to the Madonna video for Frozen, which is like still one of the most perfect pieces of art ever. And, you know, she transforms into a bird and then a dog and then a bunch of birds. And then she's just kind of a shadow creature, right? <laughs> so you've got to take an X-Man and make them like a rock star star in like a big way right and you have to set it to some kind of music that people would be like yes that is totally the music that that x-man listens to and this sort of like rogue as the heroine of this one gas station town magic dolly parton verse is everything rogue fans need right now oh oh my god well you just gave me an idea for the title if i do another one it would be crazy x girlfriend yes i need it (laughs) i need it i you know so aconite i promise you should do a second book (laughs) yes please oh my god i need i need another one uh like the the tone I mean, I can't talk enough about the tone, overall tone, the setting you put Rogue in, the conflicts you put her in, the characters you had her interact with. Um, and X-Fans always love it when you sprinkle in characters that they don't see as much. So they're like, yes, oh my gosh. so and so." There's some so, Gambit deep cuts here. There that. are some deep ass Gambit cuts. It is <laughs> fucking wild. Yes. Oh, this makes me so happy. Well, you know, one of the things that hit me when I was writing this is I... I try to write for myself as a reader. And I was thinking about, it it was hard for me in the beginning of the pandemic to read anything and get lost in it. And I ended up doing kind of, mostly I was reading from paperbacks from hell, a lot of 80s horror, like The Nest, uh, which is cockroach horror. Amazing. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. But then I also found myself rereading Dead Until Dark, the first book in the Sookie Stackhouse series. I mean, I had loved all all of those books back before True Blood. I hadn't read them in a really long time, but I just, I needed to reread something because I, I had forgotten how to read and get lost in anything that wasn't the crazy pandemic reality. And I thought, oh, you know, I see a through line between Suki and Rogue. It's it's kind of, there is something about innocence with a sharpness, you know, not, not someone who's innocent in a naive way, but someone who's got some street smarts and yet is untried in the world and has a lot of uh, experiences that they haven't had yet. Yeah, it's like a, a naivete by virtue of inexperience, not by foolishness. Yes, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's very rogue. I also now desperately, I don't know how I got here, but so much of what we just said, I now really need some sort of X-Men wacky races. <laughs> and I need rogues, like magical rogue gambit car to always be being chased by Mystique, who's like, and this time we'll steal the car for ourselves. And like, it's it's really <laughs> developing in my head because, you know, it 
you're so right. There is something about the kind of power of understanding how to get lost in something. And as silly as it sounds, like the powerfulness of a cartoon, the total immersion, the the silly I could get lost in this of a cartoon is not i don't want to say this was cartoony at all but there was something magical about it like something about like i just kept turning the pages and i'm very i toss my phone down and come back to it later kind of person but this was an engaging reading experience where i found myself being like okay i'm gonna make a note and i'm gonna keep going and i read this a lot faster than i expected to just by virtue of wanting to continue the book and that was that's something that I, I can do when I'm like binging something that like I, I really love, like a Golden Girls, which is like, you know, I could put on 46 of those a day. That's fine. That's, you know, that's how you binge, right? This had binge quality to me. And that's something I really appreciated about it. I wanted to finish it. It didn't feel like, well, I have the interview on Wednesday. Oh my God, you speak to my heart. Because first of all, I just want to say that the Golden Girls is one of the influences in the project I'm working on right now. Um, I think people forget how much sex the golden girls were having it was it's, non-stop it, all these the time. golden girls <laughs> were having more sex than most 20 somethings that i know uh and and it's part of what makes that series so incredibly fun they are and they're all younger than you think they are because i remember in the 80s assuming that these women were in their 80s and now I, i'm like no they were in their 50s yeah it's um, pretty much implied that in the series premiere blanche should be about 48 Dorothy should be 55, Sophia should be 70, and I believe Rose should be somewhere between Blanche and Dorothy. Like, we are kind of crazy about this fucking show on this show, right? We're a little <laughs> deranged. Like, we have nonstop conversations about how much we miss Empty Nest. I'm not kidding. So, like, this is our jam. Okay, so like, we need to really edit it. So the project I'm doing now is with Ahoy Comics, and Tom Pyre calls it, you know, sort of... Um, having a lot of the sensibility of vertigo but with a strong mandate for humor and everything and i i am having so much fun it's it's um anyway so that's just that's so someday we'll talk about that but can't um, wait yeah that sounds amazing like anything with the sensibilities of that oh i need to fuck up so Alyssa, i want to oh. thank you so much for taking the time from your amazing schedule whether it's working on those yeah. Marvel audiobooks, which I can't stress enough, New Avengers Breakout was one of my first Marvel audiobooks that I picked up with my Audible account, right? I get my credit guys every month because I'm nuts. And I used to have to do a lot more travel for work. But I've kept my Audible account for whatever reason. And like, because I just don't get new books. But New Avengers Breakout is one I could go back to. And I definitely enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. And I'm going to say something crazy. You know, I, I could definitely place that Widow was new, but I swear I didn't even realize that Wolverine was missing having read the actual arc. So that's really a fascinating point. I couldn't have pointed that out. I also want to point out that you've got some other amazing novels out there, as well as some other audiobooks. You've got comics. It's you know been amazing getting to talk to you. Is there any one project that you want people to check out after they check out Rogue? If they're like, oh man, gotta have more of her. What project would you point them to that you want people to familiarize themselves with you? That's one of Nathan's questions. I totally just stole it. Sorry, I, know, I, I forgot like, that uh, you're in 
in the room. Like, like I forgot whose question it was that I was taking it. I was like, is that a Rod question or an Arturo question? Damn it, it's Nathan. I've started already. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Gosh. Okay, so question. let me think. Um, if what you're wanting is that sort of YA super-powered adventure with a little bit of body horror, then uh, I think Cadaver and Queen uh, and its its uh, companion book, Corpse and Crown, might be might be fun things to check out. Uh, those are both, uh, I, I call them, you know, sort of Frankenstein meets Grey's Anatomy. Um, I love if, that. <laughs> and if uh, what you're after is more a sort of uh, romantic dramedy aspect, then um, I think the I've written a lot of women's fiction novels, and um, and those you know often have another plot element layered on. They've got um, you know usually some aspect of mystery or thriller or spy element. Uh, so, but I think my 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 stuff has been published really really differently. The covers are wildly different, but in the end, I, I've been told that I sound like me in whatever it is I'm writing. Um, so yeah, so I guess that's what um, that's what I would say. That was my observation at the beginning of the show. You sound like you in person <laughs> as well. So that's super amazing. <laughs> oh, and can I plug one other thing? Please plug everything. This is your time. <laughs> so I, um, I, you know that there's a, a Sandman Netflix series coming up. Yes! In preparation yes. for it, I am doing a, a podcast that is with, with a friend of mine. She is the podcast and story expert genius. Her name's Lonnie Diane Rich with Chipperish Media. And she and I will be doing a deep dive into the Sandman comics that have been adapted into the TV miniseries. So we're going to start with that. It's June 29th. Uh, the teaser is already up. Uh, it's called Endless Podcast. And, and then after we finish reading the comics, me rereading and talking about what it was like working on them, and um, Lonnie will be reading them for the first time. Then we'll take a little break and we'll come back and we will be tackling the, uh, the actual Netflix TV series. That is so exciting. We're doing something completely different. We're recreating Vertigo arc by arc uh, weekly in a nightmarish move that is designed exclusively to break my sanity. But we're kind of building it arc by arc. And so you guys are going to be covering this stuff like well in advance of us. Which So anybody who wants to then check out our upcoming Vertigo Voices channel, guys, you've got to check this out first. Not only is it going to beat us to the punch by a long shot, but this is going to be the stuff we're reacting to. I can't recommend enough. If you like what we're doing and you want to keep listening to where we're going, check this out because it's going to be covering the stuff firsthand in a way that one-of-a-kind experience. Now, if I can just ask one really crazy, like, super fan, I, you know, super eye-rolling question, was it exactly as cool as I imagine being in the Vertigo offices at that, like, because, like, I, I, it's no secret that Hellblazer is, like, one of my favorite books of all time, and Sandman, you know, wrote my fiction suit, and, like, I, was, was the Vertigo office that cool? Was it, like, was it, like, Karen Berger just, like, running around 
around like some sort of amazing newspaper editor breaking the stories that everybody needs to hear. And like Neil Gaiman just floated in like via fire escape and a magic carpet and stuff. Was it as cool as it is in my head? Oh, absolutely. It really was the most amazing and magical place to be working. And I I remember that it it seemed to me, I'm sure this is wrong, but it seemed to me that every day after work, uh, Tom Pyre and Stuart Moore and I would go to the Irish pub around the corner. It was called the Irish pub. And we would sit there having beer. And if somebody, if if, if a freelancer was in town, um, he, usually it was a he, would come and join us. And we would just talk about the day. I, I, it was really cool and, and very social, you know, in those, in those early days. And Karen and I, I had this, um, I, I would bring her lunch to her most days. We tended to eat in her office and talk about stuff. And, you know, Karen and I are still friends. We still talk. We still collaborate. Um, it, I think all, yeah, I'm stuttering, but it was, it was a really good time. And, um, yeah, and I'm, I, I babble, babble, but yes, it was very, very cool. You can't babble any harder than my insides are like lighting up right now. I, I, can I tell you, I remember one of the things I remember is a 22 year old, I think he was 22 year old Garth Ennis coming in. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> he fancies me as some sort of horror writer. And we would all get, you know, kind of tipsy with beer and, and we'd all kept keep saying, you know, DC fancies me as some sort of horror writer. So yeah, I, um, apologies to Garth, but that is one of my my early memories of uh, of Vertigo. That is that is like one of the greatest. I mean, like I I know his work can occasionally have some themes that people yeah. find challenging and difficult. But if the term problematic fave applies to anybody in my life, it is my obsessive collecting of Garth Ennis, even to this day, and like. Uh, nothing makes me happier when then that guy goes nuts with monsters and nightmares. And uh, yeah, I I, actually, I have him signing uh, the first issue of Dangerous Habits. I have uh, Neil Gaiman's signature on the first issue of Season of Mists. Like I, I really deify this era. Wow. And to have you on this show is just such beyond a dream come true. And I just want to thank you. I kept my fanboy down this whole time as best I could, but I just need to thank you because so much of my fiction world is based on the world you help shape. And thank you so much for everything you've given to me over the years, directly and indirectly. So thank you so much. Thank you. And if you ever have any Vertigo related questions, you know, please feel free to ask and tell Mike Perry that I say hi. And uh, I hope in a post-pandemic world, we will again be able to meet up, have a beer. Hey everybody, Nico here one more time, and in this next segment, Rod, Raven, and Robbie take a look at the Women of Marvel one-shot. Now, this thing had an incredible, star-packed cast and team of creatives. Manny was by Mariko Tomaki and Peach Momoko. Operation Spyglass was by Elsa Sunnison, Naomi Franquiz, and Brittany Peer. 
She's Got the Look by Mariko Tamaki and Nina Vakuva was followed by Creatious Flirtatious by Natasha Alteresi, Joanna Estep, and Irma Navila. Good Hair was by Mariko Tamaki and Rachel Scott with Rochelle Rosenberg, which brought us to Saturday Morning in Harlem by Anne Toole, Kay Zama, and Ruth Rutherford. We then looked at Wild Rhino Chase by Nadia Shamas, Skylar Partridge, Triona Farrell, before turning to Water When Needs Watering by Mariko Tamaki, Marika Cresta, and Michelle Rosenberg. Give a Cat a Bone was by Sophie Campbell, Eleonora Carlini, and Triona Farrell. Date Night by Zoraida Cordova, Maria Frolic, and Rachel Rosenberg. And lastly, we talked about The Goddess of Death Sleeps Tonight by Mariko Tamaki and June Brigham, Roy Richardson, and Michelle Rosenberg. I also want to point out it's great to see June Brigham's name there as one of the co-creators of Power Pack. She's a legend in her own right, and it was terrific to see her on this piece. Now, Rod Raven and Robbie discuss this piece from so many different perspectives, whether it's from a fan of the characters, a feminist perspective, or it's somebody looking to be able to jump into one of these books and understand anyone in it. There is an incredible amount of perspective in this next segment, and I'm so proud to bring it to you guys. Now, as always, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So feel free to give us a subscribe over on Patreon, Twitter, and YouTube at Exes for Podcast. If you're so inclined, why not drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts and tell the world how much you enjoy listening to us, which we hope is as much as we love making this show for you guys twice a week, every week. As always, guys, I am Nico. Keep those Krakoan gateways open, those mutant lights lit. Enjoy this last segment, and guys, we'll see ya. Welcome to the next segment of X's for Podcasts. My name is Rod. You can find me at Twitter on Instagram at Rod, the, that's R-O-D-C-O-M-M-A-T-H-E. And I have the righteous Robbie with us today. Hey, everyone. I am Robbie, and you can find me always being cute or whatever on, at Age of Hilarious on Twitter. And with us, we have the amazing Raven. Hello, darlings. You know me. You love me. I'm your queer art ho auntie who just can't say enough about her fish. <laughs> <laughs> AKA Dame Red Bento. You can find me on Twitch, Twitter, Instagram. By all means, please come and find me. I love just having a good old time. So, what are we reading today? It's called Women of Marvel. We have 11 stories in this Women of Marvel book. We get our first story is with Deathstrike, and it's a one pager. We get a lot of these, a few of these, like five or six of these pages. And it's her in a setting we've never seen her before. You know, we've never seen her get her nails done. And she's never really been like she's been fashionable but she's never really seen her in that setting and this one where she's like give me a weapon that's like fashionize my weapon and they're like we're gonna put jewels and charges on top of your weapon so there we go it's in, it's in the life of the strike i understand <laughs> your complaint for this raven i found it cute and quirky but i understand where you're coming yeah. from yeah like literally she <laughs> has them all the time she wouldn't suddenly go oh my god how do i get my keys out now? like you know she already knows how to do this it would just be the uh, like you know tweezers from about a foot away like surgical strike but I will have to say I liked the colors. I liked mm-hmm. that kind of watercolor feel. It made it feel a bit more relaxed and yeah, definitely slice of life. And I thought it was done really well. So yeah. I like the I just like the love the art too and the way they like did her makeup on her face and like the, the sharpness of her nails. She just looks she looks deadly because she's yeah. desperate. But, Peach you know. Momoko did <laughs> phenomenal with that art. Mm-hmm. And I will say, while I do like the part of her going to like get her nails 
nails done. I do think, like, the big punchline, if it could have been a completely different joke, that this probably would have landed way better. Because mm-hmm. I definitely can see uh, Lady Deathstrike not thinking, you know, of something ahead of time, but maybe, yeah, had the joke been a lot more different, this could have came off as more funnier mm-hmm. than just cute. Yeah. Like, look at how small that purse is. Show me her trying to reach into that purse with all of those jewels on, and, like, you see just jewels flying off and shit while she's just trying to take out her keys like oh well i'll be back in two weeks <laughs> right or right. like what if it was something where like she had to like i don't know fight someone or something and she's like ah oh, shit i just <laughs> got nails, my nails, not the nails. like or her trying to f- yeah like her trying to fight someone without having to use her nails that she just did like yeah. <laughs> i would have i would have liked it if like if you're gonna if you're gonna keep it the same cool but i would have preferred something else on the nails that was like kind of like a um, like seen as a weapon but not necessarily a weapon like it was like a fun joke as like oh we consider these weapons like on her nails because a nail technician is like oh you want cutesy weapons okay and it could have been like i don't know like poodle dogs i don't know <laughs> like some, no. something that's like not a weapon but you know but like on on uh nails i've seen this more and more as a trend um they've been like putting little crystal spikes and stuff mm. so what if it was just nails but they were just these huge giant crystal spikes that were just yeah. unwieldy then like, how would she get her keys exactly yeah. it's like oh how do i get my keys i'm just like girl you just got some charms on there like yeah but overall overall again i'm always the hard one on it but overall yeah it's fun and it's slice of life so you're not meant to take it like super seriously and you know the art was good so yeah. for one Thank- pager i can't complain honestly thankfully the next one we get a a little deeper um, which is the ones I like. I love Agent Carter. I love her as I love the. I, I read all of the Exiles that she was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love her as Captain America in this alternate universe, and I'm glad that she still exists, and we didn't just forget about. Yay! Yeah, and I really like their decision to use this story, especially with the What If show coming out, and how they're going to be doing an episode about this. Mm-hmm. And so I really like how even in like books and in like that show they're still finding multiple ways of keeping Peggy Carter alive and to continue continue making stories with her I mean yeah I might never forgive Marvel for canceling one of my favorite shows Mm -hmm. but whatever that could be a discussion for another episode we could have had a third season it was material no we could have had it and they could have put it on Hulu and it could have been way different and better but whatever the actress was up for it marvel get it okay <laughs> everyone was dumped came back it's fine i'm sorry i'm not even laughing at you i'm just laughing at the truth of it all <laughs> but yeah like no her. but I, I love i love the fact that like they dump her in the middle of freaking france which at that point in time yeah it was absolutely crawling with nazis and and i love the i love the style of art that they chose to use because to me it feels slightly at least reminiscent of the 1940s and some of the and some of the artwork that they had back then where it was um you know it was a little bit more dark 
dark, gritty. You didn't have, you know, like shiny, flashy. It was, it had a bit more, um, oh, what's the right word? Because I don't, I don't want this to sound, it feels more pedestrian. And read that with giant air quotes. It feels more pedestrian. It feels like it was uh, drawn, not in modern times, but back then. And it mirrors a lot of their cartoon work that they did in like the 1940s for comic strips and for news magazines and all that kind of stuff. And I really appreciate that, honestly. It kind of takes you into that time period. And, and I like that. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Like, I wouldn't want, I love his art, but I wouldn't want like Valerio Shidi draw this because it's just, it would feel like a 2021 book. Mm -hmm. Like, it is a 2021 book, but you know, it would feel like in that era, it mm -hmm. wouldn't feel like, um, I don't know what year this was, the 1943 era. Like, it wouldn't feel like we're in that time. I'd be like, what? We're in 1943? I, I can't tell. Yeah. But, you know, like you said, this is really good. I, I love that her other counterpart is a woman of color, you know, and, and disabled, get, are handicapable. And, you know, you have handicapable representation. And it's like, the moral of the story is women are badass and she can take care of herself even if she's handicapable. That doesn't stop her from doing her job. And she doesn't stop herself from doing that. And she's like, I'm not about to leave. I don't care if I'll, you know, if I even die for the cause, you know, I'm going to here to save people. And I know I can, so I'm going to do it. Well, and funny enough, if you've ever watched Drunk History, because this is where I learned about it, there was a spy uh, who was in France who did happen to have only one leg because she lost it in an accident. She walked with a limp. She actually, uh, she had a nickname for it um, and everything. Like, so the person she's talking to, I believe is a representation of a real life female spy in France at that period in time. Oh, so I was shit. like, that's awesome. That's really fucking cool from like a historic standpoint. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh my yeah, God. I'm like, oh my God, they actually did the thing. That's awesome. It took me forever because I'm like, wait, 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 quick drug hit. Oh my God. Yeah. Drug history even covered it. So yeah, like that was awesome that they, they actually brought this female spy to the forefront of this great thing. And then she, she disappeared. Like you couldn't find a, 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 a woman who walks with a limp and has like named her prosthetic in the middle of France. Are you sure? She's like, mm, what can I say? I'm like, that is almost word for word. Like the story that was going on with that particular spy is Nazis could not seem to catch this woman. They're like, how can we not catch this woman who has a prosthetic leg and a limp? Like what the hell? I great. love that so much. I did not know this was real. Major prop to the writer and Marvel for putting this story out. I absolutely love mm -hmm. that. Amazing. Love it. I hope we, you know what? We, we need to, uh, hope Marvel sees the attention this might get. I don't know. And gets like a, like a five issue, just like a five issue story of like Agent Carter and like going through her, you know, stories and having more stories like, oh you know, God, yes. like so historically accurate. Since she's in another universe, they can do that. You know, they can do whatever they want. And mm -hmm. I thought that'd be really cool. That'd be really nice to see. Oh my God. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. I would, I would absolutely adore if they did something like that. Speaking of something nice to look at, we get the next page, which is Emma Frost. I was about to say Emma Stone. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> More like Emma, Emma Stoned. Right? <laughs> uh, I want to see Emma Stone. I feel like she'd be fun. I don't think we've ever seen that in the comic. Um, <laughs> but I like this one because it's like a kind of messier side we don't ever get to see of Emma because I'm always seeing her as like, you know, everything crystal and clean. You know, she never has dirty laundry. Why <laughs> would she? She's Emma Frost. Like, she doesn't do dirt. But no, I don't think she does laundry. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> Obviously she has she people don't. for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think she even wears... How do we even know what she's wearing is what she's wearing? Because she's manipulating everyone that's around right. her. <laughs> 
You know, well, one thing, I really loved all the messy piles of clothes because looking at my little pile of clothes, <laughs> you know, I understand. Like, you know, it's hard to do laundry sometimes. And um, what I liked about the projection part is I was like, you know... <laughs> Looking at some of her old outfits now, it makes a lot of sense. How do they like, stay on? Like, for example, <laughs> her one outfit from New X-Men. Now, I'm like, that makes sense. It was probably a projection the whole time. Because that, that did not make sense staying <laughs> on her body at all. Even Jumbo Coronation could not hold that shit on. I'm like, oh, mental projection. That makes way more sense. <laughs> It does makes like, a lot more sense. I feel like she she even like mentally flattened her hair and like made it like look right. better. I'm just like, girl, you did the most, and I love it. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I just I have to laugh because she's at least wearing the boots. <laughs> but that's the only part of the outfit that she's actually wearing is the boots and the shades. I'm like, yeah, and the nails, <laughs> right? And the fact that she has like the art like crop top with the like the Jesus hands touching. I was like, oh, that's oh yeah, yeah, God. David. Yeah, I was like, that's <laughs> an interesting shirt for Emma to wear. Right. It fits though. It fits. Like, my only thing though is, I hope she put on deodorant and brushed her teeth, because while a mental projection can cover a lot of things, they ain't gonna cover up stench. Te like, technically they can, but, oof, you gotta, she's powerful, but I don't think she's powerful enough to morning mask, breath. yeah, mask everybody of her morning breath. <laughs> morning breath and pet stench, or pit stench. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do want to point out something that, like, I just, I just like noticed this. I didn't even notice when I first read. But the people that are like, "Wow, she looks great," those are people of color, mm -hmm. and like, those are just random people. Yeah, and I know right. it's like, it's like, why are we, why am I, why are you point that out, Rod? It's like because <laughs> that's just usually people just when they draw random people, it's mm -hmm. usually white people, and mm -hmm. it's like not a if you draw just white people in the, in the crowd. That's, I mean, it's whatever. But the fact that they like did these detail on these people and made them people of color and drew their facial expression right for the mm -hmm. most part. It's, With nice clothing on and everything, yeah. Yeah, it, I appreciate that. It's those little details that really, you know, make people feel seen, even if they're not the main characters in a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the next one was definitely a silly one. And I, I was like, this one was I didn't really understand. <laughs> I don't really know how it fits continuity-wise. Um, but Because Rogue is really young. <laughs> Well, and, and like, I know how it fits continuity-wise, and it irritates me. Oh, see, I don't. And I'm like, years ago? Was Young that young years ago? <laughs> how many years? Because Rogue's like 30-something now, right? At least? Yeah, and this this was back when she was in high school. Yeah, I I appreciate for the yuck-yuckness, because it is, it is cute. I don't know who the hell this dinosaur villain is. Um, but <laughs> do we see him ever? Is he new? I don't know. I is don't know. Di uh, Stegron the Dinosaur Man. Like, mm. I, I, mean, I don't think I've ever heard that name. Hey, this is going to go up in the speculator's uh, price because this is the first appearance of, of, of Stegron the Dinosaur Man. He's going to be a big villain for the X-Men later. <laughs> Right, apparently. While I did appreciate the Jurassic Park references, there was something that kind of, I don't know, I it was like, it felt like it was missing from this issue. And I really do think it was the inclusion of Destiny. 
Because it's like, how can you have some type of story where it's like a parent type of moment with Mystique and Rogue, but you're mm-hmm. also missing her other mom? Destiny. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like if we would have had like Destiny and Cl- like, you know, Mystique and Destiny trying to do a little like a goofy uh, villain mom moment, I think it would have landed way more. Thank you! Because I think the more quote-unquote sweeter dialogue that we see from Mystique instead should have came from Destiny. And Mm -hmm. it would have landed like personality-wise, because Destiny has always been very, you know, sweet and softer towards Rogue. Mm -hmm. And that would have landed a thousand times better. And it's it's just... Well, it's different. And it's... Okay, I will preface this with I'm not trying to be negative. This is a critique. When they just boil it down to a couple of kids flirting, I mean, the the name of the title was Crustaceous Flirtatious. Like, the joke fell really flat because not only is it oh oh you're is this boy human uh what do you think she's on a school trip there's a like 90 billion percent <laughs> chance that he's human you know rogue doesn't exactly know she's a mutant or she might know that she's a mutant but i mean she hasn't even become rogue yet she's still uh Anne marie mm-hmm. so like she hasn't even been kidnapped yet really like the dinosaur is sort of brought to life slash i guess sapped with some sort of animation ray you can hear yeah. my voice going up because i'm trying to figure it out <laughs> <laughs> i'm like he's like brother my brother how do you know it's a boy um right? now fulfill your destiny and i'm like uh, but it's and not, immediately it's goes yeah and then and like immediately goes for the girl i'm like um the underside of a jaw is is all open space she can dive through if she has any training from mystique or destiny then the a big pile of bones is not going to be that much of a freaking issue but then like mystique jumps into action to be the the good guy and smash this i don't like 1950s-esque thing to pieces so that the guy can no longer control the dinosaur and haha well we don't need your services because i already knew that you weren't a mutant like how the f is he not a mutant how did she know like there's just there's 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 a lot of holes i will say i i just put it in the chat too that i viewed 50 percent of this book with rope because glasses <laughs> and like looking back at it now there are some issues i love like mm-hmm. i you might Absolutely. not love it like like i love the uh agent carter i love the medusa yeah. one i love the emma one misty knight and we haven't gotten to those yet but i'm just saying like mm-hmm. and there's some like this one with yeah. the misty that reading it over again is a little is, is it can use critique <laughs> It falls it flat. Be yeah. It did. With the second read, it definitely, because I feel like I was, I also like rush read this. Mm. So I was like, oh, I was like, oh, this is cute. Dinosaur, cool. All right, let's, Medusa, cool. <laughs> like, yeah. But um, yeah, how did she know he wasn't a mutant? Right. I don't know. And they're yelling at each other that you're, we're not done talking about this. And yes, we are. And no one is concerned about, they just all get back on the bus. Right? I'm like, oh, no. like oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I get, and I get, 
get that it's hard to um, tell a story in, in a very short amount of pages, but this is not the short uh, story. Like, this isn't a one or two pager. This is one, two... Yeah, so it's like, you got like six, seven pages? And I'm like, that's a pretty good amount of time to work with. And it had just missed a trick for me. Yeah. Well, let's go to the next page that was the one pager that I liked because we got the, I we never see Medusa relaxed. <laughs> Even in this, she's not really relaxing. Right. But we never really get to see her actually like take care of her hair. And that's like our big part of her thing. And I didn't know that she telepathically like chopped the hair. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. The hair was technically alive on its own. Mm -hmm. I thought she just mm -hmm. like controlled it. Yeah, um, it could even move after it's been cut off. I think too, shaved off. So. Yeah. Oh wow. See, I I learned something. I probably should have known that, but I learned something new with this little one page. <laughs> what did y'all think about it? Again, I'm being a little bit hard. I wish there was just a <laughs> touch, a touch more. Like I would have loved to see, like, because you have all this open space here on the floor of the building mm -hmm. or uh, of the room she's in. I would have loved to just seen like a strew of stupid hair products that she tried. And then the thing that she's whipped out is just the velvet hair scrunchie, which is your most ba basic hair scrunchie. And that's the thing that, so like, you know, have the clippets, the bumpets, the, you know, all the different stuff. And then the, the one last thing that works is this freaking you know, hair scrunchie. I think that would have really just punched it home. But overall, I think it was effective and it was fun. It was a fun slice of life. One pager. Yeah, I do. Ooh, I was like, I just thought of this when you were saying that. I would have even liked if maybe Reed Richards, Archery, would have made her like this super crazy scrunchie <laughs> because then humans are friends with, you know, Wakandans and the in the, in the Fantastic Four. So it fits. Oh so, my God. you know. That would have been nice. Shuri handing her a scrunchie would have been comedy gold. That would have. Also, Medusa's not on Earth right now. <laughs> I would have liked being like a few years ago because it just says New York. And I'm like, she's not in New York right now. <laughs> No, I see um, what you mean. I'm like, where, where is she in New York? You know what happened? <laughs> she needed time away to get some work done, so she ended up getting an Airbnb. You know what? <laughs> okay, I can roll with that story. You know what? Why not? You know what? I'm gonna say cool. <laughs> I I love how they drew the hair. It was oh just god, yeah, art. yeah. The the hair is beautifully done. Honestly, speaking, speaking of beautiful hair done, mm -hmm. like in like a good style, is the next page or next pages. This this is the one that actually gets a lot of pages too that I really enjoy. Um, is the Misty Night Storm, mm -hmm. which we don't get a lot of Misty Nights. So I'm her all for whenever we get is so goddamn beautiful. Mm -hmm. Probably yeah. my favorite design maybe in this issue. It, and we don't get a lot of her. I mean, in like normal clothes like this outside mm -hmm. of the costume. I appreciate that. And it, it was great. Like they didn't try and cover up the arms so that you that you, so that you can only see the hand. Like often, you know, they do that because that is a lot of work to like try and draw and whatnot. But also um, having her arm exposed like that, you know, she's a person with prosthetic, which means, yeah, she's, she's lost her arm. Her arm has been amputated. So it really brings forward uh, representation of people who are who are differently abled because of you know accidents or who've been uh, who've lost limbs and whatnot. And you know they are she's being loud and proud about, it and I love it because so often you know you're trying to cover up. But yeah, oh my god, between her hair and the arm, just, just everything about this, I really like this story. Like it was it was so beautifully done. And the dissing of the cops was nice. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Great. Like, I was like, thank you. We don't. <laughs> We don't need to we don't need to elevate the cops. 
Mm-hmm. We, we, she, Misty Knight left that a long time ago for mm-hmm. a reason. It's mm-hmm. good. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was great because you just, you see her acting as a person and sort of as a PI, you know, instead of trying to stay within the confines of the law or mm, maybe I should go back to the police and help them get their work done. She's like, nah, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we get more representation. We get a lady, uh, an older woman with a hijab yeah. and she's the one that actually is helpful. Yeah. <laughs> like nobody else wants to help Misty Knight mm-hmm. except for this woman. And we, I mean, technically we got introduced to maybe a new mutant. She might be new. And then like her, her dad, we haven't, we don't really know if we have, I don't know if he's known. So maybe two new mutants if she's a mutant too. So that's kind of cool, even though her dad is evil. Right. So, <laughs> this oh book God. had a few firsts. I feel like, which is kind of interesting to have in a, this variety type of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they oh, they did such a good job with that. And yeah, Black Box. I'm like, yeah, I'm okay with this name. I'm actually okay with this name. Uh, and he's he's a tech mutant, which you don't get to see tech mutants very often. So like to see his army of these robots show up, you're like, oh shit, you ain't even kidding. So we might actually get to see more of this, I think, later on, hopefully, uh, in, in her regular title. So I loved it. Hopefully. Did y'all know who um that lady in the green is towards the end so i see there's let's see there's spider woman echo i guess it's the black widow is that i, I is that black mockingbird widow in the, oh mockingbird white tiger i'm drawing a blank on the woman in green because i i see red hair and there's not a lot of women that are like hand-to-hand combat that yeah. are, don't have powers that have red hair in the marvel universe so like i know yeah. i should know her and i'm drawing a blank right now on her it's a character named the dryad dryad I don't think I've ever run across her. I don't think so. I know the Lady Liberty has, um, like, this group together um, mm-hmm. has made a comeback in the recent Tanahasi Code Captain America run. Nice. Um, I know they were helping him a lot. So I guess if you've read that run, which I haven't, you've probably seen it, and you're probably like, y'all are dumb. This is this person. Or like, we're sorry. <laughs> we know everybody else. <laughs> and I love, I love how they're drawn. Like the clothing fits a little bit better, and, and the, the dimensions are just a little bit more real realistic on them like oh, okay i enjoy i enjoy that they drew them and i also love the fact they just all show up and start whooping wholesale ass yeah, i mean they actually look like actual you know female bodies and they actually have you know wrinkles in their clothing they're not like super super skin tight right. they obey the laws of physics and fabric oh my god who would have thought that you could draw like that um, <laughs> It's new to me. Um, so speaking uh, of uh, nice drawings, I like the next one, the Wild Rhino Chase with She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. This one was really nice. I like how She-Hulk drawn in this mm-hmm. a lot. Same. And I just like her fighting Rhino. This If this doesn't prove that we need a She-Hulk solo, I don't know yes. what this because this was such a fun little read. Mm-hmm. It was a cute little interaction, and I really loved how we were able to get another Muslim character in this issue as well. Mm-hmm. And what I like is, like, this story in Misty Nights, um, like, usually when it comes to seeing, like, Muslim characters, it tends to normally be in a Miss Marvel book. Mm-hmm. And I like that we're getting to see side characters outside of Miss Marvel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it was it was really nice 
it was it was an interesting story not my favorite though but i liked <laughs> the way it was drawn like i like love the way they kept she hulk very you know thick fit powerful just you know muscle you know they didn't try and make her uber soft and femme just happen to have some big biceps like no they went no nah, you're gonna be thick waisted thick thigh look like you can you know bench press <laughs> bench press a truck i loved it that was great it was the it was the end for me that didn't quite land because it's like oh you've been served yeah that was a little different <laughs> i'm like usually if you get served like show show her showing up to the museum because she's been you know stalking him mm-hmm. so that she could serve him papers or asking are you uh alexi stenovich or stesovich like when you serve papers there's a very particular process you have to go through and like you have to get the person to to admit what their name is basically for a lot of it um that way you can go okay yes i know that i served these papers to this person because i got confirmation from them like if he if she had followed the process you literally could have kept it panel for panel the way it is but if you had had her you know like staple the staple the freaking thing to the back of her belt or whatever and then just keep asking what his name is you know are you alexi uh Sistenovich or you know whatever that would have that would have been you know that would have landed the joke a little bit mm-hmm. better because you know when he finally goes ow yes why why do you keep asking oh you've been served <laughs> that would have been funny on I this one it that. felt a little flat for me but that's that's that. really one of my very few criticisms about it so take that as you will yeah, I feel like they left out. I feel like the only reason they left out the beginning is so you could have that you get served punchline, but then you do get like the missed opportunity of actually having like the beginning mystery of that, and then you can connect that to the beginning when you see it. Like mm-hmm. I like what said Raven. You could have she could have been like two different ways, either like showing up in her lawyer outfit, you don't know it's right. Jennifer asking his name and then chasing him, or like like asking his name throughout and then like doing that. Like it would have made the joke a little bit better. And it could have been funny too had she asked the name and he would have been like yeah of course you know my name <laughs> yeah because or no i'm her. the rhino like <sighs> don't need your stage name i need your real name <laughs> i do love that the young girl that uh she saved assuming a girl <laughs> yeah. it doesn't have to be a girl it doesn't have to be a girl it could be a non-gender because we don't know their uh, gender but that person that she saves is like you know all oh, those arms <laughs> it's the best day of my life and i love that <laughs> She still, She Hulk still gets admired, mm-hmm. even not being like the model esque. She mm-hmm. like she's still like even in the first page, the the young black girl in the first page is like looking up at her and admiring her. I'm like oh my gosh, she's like this powerful beast goddess and standing in front of me, the superhero. Like I love that. She doesn't have to be like the model like she used to be to get admired like that. You know? Right? I, I love the parents like trying to drag her away. It's like, Mom! It's she up. This is so cool! And they're like, okay, <laughs> we're we're not supposed to be here at the moment because that's the rhino and shit's about to go sideways. <laughs> uh, so that She-Hulk made me realize, I mean, this we need a, a solo for She-Hulk. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Hopefully soon after, the, you know, she's done being in the Avengers. Um, <laughs> so the next story is, this is the one I identified the most with because I can't take care of plants or shit. <laughs> and I feel like I've had telekinetic powers. I would also throw the plant away. This is Jean Grey. 
unleashing the phoenix on some plants. <laughs> what did y'all think about this one? I don't see her as being that inept or that uh, easy to anger. Probably not. <laughs> so yeah, I was just like, well that, and again, they missed in, okay, in my very gentle critique, they missed the joke where yeah, it's ceramic, it's, you know, totally fireproof as it falls off a table and just shatters or some shit. So like you can't even take care of a ceramic plant would be funny. But, you know, over yeah, no, I give me give me nothing but water. I can keep a plant alive for a very long time. Give me soil. <laughs> It'll be dead probably inside of a month. <laughs> what did you no, think about this one, Robbie? I wasn't the biggest fan of it. I mean, I definitely understand when it comes with plants, um, especially a succulent, because I also killed a succulent before. It's rough trying to keep that shit alive. I wonder if it might have been better had it been a different X-Men character trying to take care of a plant. Mm. I would say Monette. She oh has yeah, anger. Monet. She's Monet, yeah. She gets angry really quickly. Sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she has psychic powers. <laughs> so. Oh. Oh, or or uh, somebody who normally has control over nature, but this time they're trying to do it with a plant that is like just okay. It's just a store bought. Oh, like deer girl. Special. Yes, like having her try her best to take care, of, but like you know she's like not using her powers and not. To, and if she does use her powers, it just goes you know bonkers out of control, whatever. But yeah, it's like. Uh... Or one character that it could have been really funny with could have been like Sage. I can imagine Sage doing all this fucking research. Oh yeah. And still killing the plant. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yes. Like, I can get that. Yeah. Like there's. Uh, it was. A, it would be a great level of Schadenfreude to have somebody who's supposed to be so knowledgeable just utterly fail. <laughs> yeah, I think this is. I don't know. Maybe I think because you know writers see internet stuff all the time. Oh yeah. And I don't. Course. I don't know if y'all know the old comics that were uh, fan made about Jean Grey like talking shit about the X Men and losing control of the Phoenix and just jokes and stuff. Um, I feel like this was kind of a callback to that. I wish I forget who the writer was as an artist can't remember their name but they created like a little like uh, fan made jokes about like Jean Grey like from the cartoon being the phoenix and like talking shit about Jubilee and like saying that she can't go to like a game night because she's lost control because of the phoenix even though she hasn't she's just using oh, it okay. like, cool things like that. and I feel like this would be like that comic this mm. would be that Jean Grey and I feel like that's what they were trying to go for it oh, doesn't okay. make sense in the hawk's pot of it all you know hey maybe on this one I just missed the joke which you know that i feel like it needed needed more panels that's what it's missing it just needed more panels that's all and i feel like that's what the big thing about this whole book was it's just too many stories yeah they didn't get enough breathing room (laughs) yeah you know oh that's the perfect word for it I wanted the stories to have more breathing room, but you, you know, it's really hard to do that when you have so many stories packed into one issue. So yeah, no, 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 that, that was nail on the head. We needed a little bit more breathing room. Now, the next one had breathing room, but I know you had a problem with Raven, with the feral and um, marrow, <laughs> feral marrow. I, I guess they did that on purpose, um, with their whole interaction. And... The art is nice. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the art is definitely good. And I mean, I I grew up reading Feral, so I, I know these characters. And I grew up with Mero when she was still a Morlock. So 
yeah, no, I, I know these characters pretty well. I was a little surprised to see Farrell, even though that is her name, react so quickly. I was not surprised mm-hmm. to see Marrow act so quickly. I feel right. like that was the mistake, is seeing maybe Farrell have made maybe like more of a surprise bait. Mm-hmm. And like, and, why attacking? Yeah, and, and honestly, that was that's where I had a little bit more issue, is Farrell would not have invaded Marrow's space like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems very out of character, but also she wouldn't have had such a quick reaction to it. I can absolutely see Marrow having a quick reaction. She is absolutely the hothead and very temperamental and does not like her space invaded. So yeah, very standoffish. Whereas Feral, for the most part, is it's she's just average, everyday, normal person when it comes to temperament. But yeah, she would not invade her space like that or react so quickly because yeah, when she reacts, <laughs> it is a wildcat. You're, it's just nothing but claws and fangs and and fury. <laughs> so which we definitely see that. I did like the heart fighting style with Farrell and Mero. I thought that was a really cool fight. And I mean, Mero, I mean, Mero definitely won the fight, but <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it was nice. They, I mean, they're both kind of evenly matched, but <laughs> I do like um, that we get Shark Girl because we don't ever see her. Oh, I love Shark like, Girl. I want more Shark Girl. I know we're going to get her, I think, in the... Uh, Is she like X-Men? Jeff the Land Shark's godmother? No, <laughs> that would, I want them to interact. That'd be so awesome. Oh my God. <laughs> I missed opportunity when um, Jeff came to Krakoa that she wasn't there. Um, but I like this whole interaction with characters that we don't see all that much, and them just being like really mean. Which is, I mean, she's a hellion, so that's her. That's in her, you know, in her skill. <laughs> so I heard somebody. I think mutant musings. They're like in this other podcast. They're like New Jersey people, and they're like, yeah, she's mean like that because she's from New Jersey. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they've got Sprite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, oh, some of these are from New Mutants. So I was like, ah, I'm picking up what they're putting down. But yeah, like, I love the fact that, yeah, they are using a lot of the, the characters you would see sometimes in the backgrounds, like New Mutants, X-Factors, uh, Gen X, all like all that kind of stuff. Like, you get to see a lot of really great background characters that don't necessarily get a lot of screen time. I just, while I loved the action, it was well drawn. It was out of place for me. And it leaned into the kind of girl fight trope that like, oh yeah, you know, girls, it'll fight over anything and then after they fight oh well then, then they're just like besties I'm like mm. I do like that I did like that they were friends at the end though because I hope we get we got so much Krokoa stuff in this in this, um, in this book which is like great because I mean X-Men are back now they're going to use them but I do hope we actually see them have a connection outside of this book because I feel like that'd be nice you Maybe... know and I like the two of them like deciding to like walk away and like be friends because they're not exactly really I don't know. Well, I guess more for Mero than uh, they're not, Mero's not really a huge social type of character that has a, like a lot of friends compared to like other X-Men characters that are really social. So it's nice to see Mero and Feral being able to establish a connection with each other. Well, but I mean, the only reason they establish that connection is because Mero found out or thought uh, Feral is ex Morlock. And like I would have I would have had more respect if she had just like looked at them and seen that they were just being douchebags and went <sighs> 
that's not right. Okay, time to go, you know, screw some shit up. But instead it's like, oh, well, because she's an ex-Morlock, then I'm going to step in. Like, yeah, it's a little, it's a little like, uh, like too on the nose and too like just kind of. I knew that was coming kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, I like, like I wanted them to be friends at the end of this and I kind of figured that what was going to happen. And I, like, I just want, I, I think it's uh probably my, like biased opinion because me, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I want, Which there's I want nothing wrong. That's right. And I want more females to be together. I want an all female group. The fact that we don't have an all female group in this Krakoa era is kind of messing on my head a little. Um, but the writing could definitely be better with how they became friends. Yeah, I just I wanted it to feel a little bit more organic. But again, that's uh, that is a small critique. That is a small critique, especially in the grand scheme of everything, because the art was on point. Like most of everything going on was really on point. We got to see a lot of great background characters in the story. So yeah, yeah. I like that we're just getting a lot more focus on Krakoa, and Marvel's not like ignoring it. The corner. I'm mm-hmm. like, good. Put it in shit. Don't ignore it. This is right. a good, good concept. Please enjoy it while it's here. <laughs> but yeah. the the next page, we got a. a I didn't expect to see Hella in this. I was like, oh, we get her being like more, you know, kind of sweet with her, you know, animal that is there, and just I don't know, like we don't get to Fenrir. See, yeah, and we don't get to see like Hella in this kind of non angry kind of way ever because <laughs> she's like the queen of hell and both to not be vulnerable at all so I thought that was kind of nice and kind of like random but nice <laughs> but going on to the next one which is the last story the Gamora one I I liked I think I liked this one either like either the second most or like my second or third one because it, I like how they touch on what Al Ewing has done with her emotional trauma that she's had with Star-Lord like that they was touched on mm-hmm. I love the fact that they show her being competent and able to do her own thing even while she is processing a lot of uh, emotional um, stuff especially about Peter Quill. She's still out there kicking ass. She's still out there you know doing what you gotta do getting the job done rescuing people and she's not gonna let uh, her feelings and the stuff that she needs to get through get in the way of still going out and doing good. So I definitely appreciated that and while while I might not have loved every aspect of the story overall the delivery of it was it was well done so yeah i mean yeah it definitely works yeah i know robbie you've been reading guardian too i believe what did you think of this one well what i really liked is well for what you what you guys said too but i liked how because sometimes we see when gamora isn't um in a lot of scenes it's usually you know slicing a bitch up or two but with this i liked how we were able to see her do a mission but through like dialogue and reaching an objective by using her her mind and like having the you know using conversation as a weapon mm-hmm. when they barge in looking for her she corrects them and mm-hmm. when the, the guardian of the galaxy get her and she's like that's the deadliest woman in the galaxy and i was like <laughs> remind them let those bitches know <laughs> and i uh, i love her ca- her cover outfit because she's that that yellow looks fabulous on her especially with her yeah. skin tone just perfect 
It really does. And I like that they made her, if she was human, they made her a black woman because the person who does play her in the movie is a black woman. Yes. So I'm like, thank you, Marvel, for that. Yeah, and I love <laughs> that because if they were going to do some type of like human type of thing with her in the movies, that's mm-hmm. what, you know, Zoe Zaldana would look. Yeah, and absolutely. And it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. Well, that is the end of this overall book. I know as <laughs> at a second glance, I definitely revered <laughs> some of the things that I upholded with this book before. I definitely see more of your context, Raven, about this yeah. book. But uh, you know what? I also see more of yours. So, yeah, I think I've softened my stance on some of the things that caused me to be, at first, I'm like, eh. Okay, now I understand this a little bit better. Sometimes, sometimes a second read through is honestly what is second needed. read through.